Well, good morning. It's good to see uh, all of you today. Heinrich Heine was born to a Jewish family in Dusseldorf, Germany in 1797. He was a poet, a journalist, and a literary critic. It's interesting to note that his cousin was Karl Marx, with whom he did share a friendship, although they disagreed politically. In fact, for his political views, Nazi Germany later burned Heine's works. I'm not sure if that's because of his political views, which opposed socialism, or if it was because he was a Jew, probably both. But eventually, he received the notoriety he deserved. In fact, the University of Dusseldorf, place of his birth, was renamed Heinrich Heine University in his honor. By the way, while born into a Jewish family, Heine converted to Christianity as a young man, about the age of 28. And so, it was on his deathbed many years later that he said these famous words. You've perhaps heard them, of course God will forgive me, it's His job. Why do I share that? Because while it is true that God's job is to forgive those who seek His forgiveness through the work of His Son, we should not perhaps view His grace so flippantly. Because I fear that, the atti- that this is the attitude of many professing Christians today. There is a strong emphasis on grace, and there should be but also a strong presumption on grace, which there should not be. What what do I mean? Many have the attitude, "I, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I asked Jesus into my heart, so I'm saved. So now I can live however I want, right? After all, He'll forgive me. I haven't really lived like a Christian, but God will forgive me after all. It's His job. Let me say it this way, you, 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 have you ever thought about sinning, perhaps, I don't know, jumping on an internet site, perhaps thinking, well, I'll ask God to forgive me because I know He will. That's presuming upon grace. I said it this way last week, you cannot call yourself a Christian and live like the world. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus and not follow. Let me say it rather strongly today. You cannot pray a prayer and live life for yourself and expect to make it to eternal life in heaven. I know those are provocative, controversial words. There has been much discussion, even controversy, over so-called lordship salvation. That is, can you be saved by calling Jesus Savior without ever acknowledging and surrendering to His lordship? Said more simply, can Jesus be your Savior without ever being your Lord? Can you live like the devil and think you'll make it to heaven because it's God's job to forgive you. 
I have said something like this once or twice before. I say it occasionally. I do not know of a more important message that I have ever preached. I want you to listen carefully today. Because in this passage before us, Peter will tell us, be all the more diligent, perhaps your translation will have it, make every effort to make your salvation sure. Yes, to be clear, he's not saying that we earn our salvation by our works, but he is clearly saying because God has saved us through the work of his son, it should change our lives. And if it does not, there is no assurance of salvation. You remember from last week, after his salutation, I suggested Peter preaches a short message in chapter 1. It goes from verses 3 to 11, which sets the stage for the rest of the book. He actually preaches gospel truth there, truth that the false teachers that he's going to deal with were denying before he takes those false teachers to task. And my concern for the church today is that there is this sort of easy believism that while not saying what these false teachers were saying, were living like they were living. And the result is the same. The result is many who profess to know Christ do not do what he says. The pastor in the past, I've I've mentioned him to you, an African-American pastor that I deeply loved and respected, Dr. S.M. Lockridge, who suggested that there are four kinds of people in the world. First, there are those who neither know Jesus as Lord nor do what he says. Secondly, he says there are people who do not Uh, who do not know Jesus as Lord, but do some of what he says. Third, there are those who profess Jesus as Lord, but do not do what he says. And fourth, there are those who both know Jesus as Lord and do what he says. And only one of those is a Christian. You see, many have prayed a prayer seeking to use Jesus as a sort of fire escape out of hell without surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. Peter and Paul and John and James make clear, you cannot do that. You cannot expect to call on Jesus to save you from your sin if you have no intention of turning from your sin. That is presuming upon grace. You cannot call yourself a follower of Jesus if, in fact, you do not follow Jesus. Provocative words, I know. Again, Peter preaches a a message. The outline of his three-point sermon, because every good sermon has three points, looks like this. God has given everything for Christians to be spiritually mature. That was last week, verses 3 and 4. Therefore... Point two, Christians should pursue spiritual maturity. He's given us everything we need, so we should do it. Point three, in fact, Christians must pursue spiritual maturity in order to enter heaven. I don't don't think I like that. I mean, that hardly looks like a Christian sermon. 
After all, it says way too much on what we do instead of what God has done. It, 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 it says way too much about Christian responsibility instead of uh, God's grace. He expects, Peter here expects way too much of us, and yet do not miss the order. We talked about this last week because the order is critically important. I could restate Peter's sermon outline like this. God has given Christians everything for life and godliness. Yes, God therefore expects Christians to live or to pursue life and godliness. Point three, Christians pursuing life and godliness is proof of point one. It's proof of salvation. Again, the order is critically important. Don't miss it. God acts and we then respond Our response is proof of God acting in our lives. If there is no response on our part, there is no proof of God acting. And so, last week we saw Christians have received His divine power to pursue life and godliness through our knowledge of Christ. Further, Christians have received His precious promises so that we can become partakers of the divine nature, meaning we can become more like God in moral virtue since we have Right now, we have escaped this world's corruption. Doesn't mean that we're sinless, but we have escaped this world's corruption. You say, but I haven't. That's a problem. Again, not that we are perfect, we begin, but we begin a lifelong process of being transformed into the image of Christ. The, the, the marred image of God is being renewed in us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as we work with Him to become more like Jesus. How? How do we do that? It's our text today. First Pe- or Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11 say this. Now, for this very reason also, because of God's grace, that's the foundation. Because of this very reason also, applying all diligence. We'll talk about that. In your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance. Boy, wouldn't it be great to be like this? And in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, or it could be in abundant measure, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we, we've received, right? Therefore, he who lacks these qualities is blind or, nearsight, or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing, uh, about his saving you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never fall. You will never stumble. For in this way, hold on to your seats. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. First of all, it's very interesting that it's called the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No, normally, we hear it as here it is the kingdom of God. Exactly. Again, Peter is declaring very explicitly and very clearly that Jesus is God. 
We will cover these verses according to that earlier sermon outline. In verses 5 to 7, Peter lists a number of virtues to to be pursued inescapably by Christians. Then in verses 8 and 9, he will have some strong words regarding the necessity of pursuing those virtues. Then he commends us to making certain of our salvation in verse 10, which will result in an entrance... Our our salvation assured, our salvation then assures our entrance into heaven in verse 11. Make note, to be clear, it's our salvation that assures the entrance, but it is our works that prove the reality of our salvation. I understand. If you are imbalanced on your understanding of grace, then these verses will bother you. You may think, hmm. Maybe 2 Peter doesn't belong in the Bible after all. But then we have a problem because Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John all say this same thing. The point is we may focus, I'm suggesting, we may focus too much on grace. Let me finish the sentence. And not enough on responsibility. We like divine sovereignty. We're not so hot on human responsibility. We may focus too much on justification and altogether forget sanctification. Peter argues, listen carefully, if there is no sanctification that is growing in Christ, then there has been no, then there has been no true justification and then there will be no future glorification. Do you see why I said this is a most important message? Did you know that the New Testament does not so much focus on a past profession, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, signed a card, shook a hand, not so much on a past profession for assurance, assurance of salvation, as much as a present confession and a changed life? How do you know you're saved? Are you confessing Jesus as Lord and living like it? So let's look at the list of virtues to pursue, verses 5 to 7. Don't miss the way he begins. Now, for this very reason, which points us back again to verses 3 and 4, because of what God has done for us, escaping corruption, because of uh, what God is doing uh, um, for us, participation in the divine nature, because of what God will do, the promise is yet to be fulfilled. In other words, because of God's work in our lives, you do your part, apply all diligence, make every effort. The words speak of working hard, diligently. Listen, expending every effort with haste. This is important. We see right away this is incredibly important. Growth in virtue is of utmost, is of utmost importance and deserves utmost effort. It's interesting to note that growth in these virtues does not just happen automatically. They require our attention, they require our focus, and they require hard work. Make every effort to supply, add to. That's an interesting word. It speaks of of making whatever cost necessary. It was a very specific word. It was used of of a guy maybe who was going to put on a play. He was going to be the director and he would get investors, but he would also put in every effort, not only only working hard to, to make sure they were already putting in his own resources, helping pay financially, providing at your own expense, 
do these things. Interestingly, having dealt with false teachers in chapters 2 and 3, which we'll get to, he gets to the end of this letter and says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, what he has just argued for, that is the return of Christ and the coming judgment, be diligent, there it is again, to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And you say, well, that's a little bit confusing. I'm making effort to be found spotless and blameless. I thought that was all God's grace. It is. You be diligent about proving it. Peter lists eight virtues or qualities. This is, was a common practice. It was a serretes, I think is the way you pronounce it. It's a, a chain saying that appears as kind of a staircase, if you will. Take this step, then add the next one. Now, there is not a specific order here, like once you've got faith, the first step in, in, in place, then and only then can you add moral excellence, and then and only then can you add knowledge. Like some of you are way back on the landing and some are, no, 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 that's not it. Rather, they are a list of virtues to be pursued concurrently. Again, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. It's like, I think I'll be kind and, 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 and patient, but I'm not so much keen on self-control. Nope, can't do that. It's not a smorgasbord, pick and choose. There is probably an intentionality in starting with faith and ending with love. We are reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Okay? That's where we end up. And in Colossians 3, we read these words, beyond all these, Paul's just given a list, and he says, but beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love, which we'll get to, is, is the glue that binds all of this together. The point is we pursue these virtues with the ultimate goal of being, uh, uh, with the ultimate goal being a love for God and a love for His people. Let's briefly define each of these, starting with faith. Earlier from verse 1, we define faith as an ability to trust God about, the, about gospel truth, the ability to trust God about the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Christ for sinners, and through His death and resurrection, to trust that faith in Him as the perfect, sinless God-man dying for sinners, not remaining dead, being raised from the dead, and repentance from sin, it is faith that all of that results in salvation, justification. That is, our sins removed. We receive the righteousness of Christ. Further then, this faith results in faithfulness, you see. That's the point he is making. It's a commitment to the gospel. The gospel not just saves me like a fire escape. I am now faithful to the one who has saved me. We don't stay where we were. We don't just stay with faith in the gospel, as important that is, as that is. In fact, it must begin there. But from there, the gospel changes our lives. When we move on to pursuing Christ's likeness, the divine nature, to being restored to the image of God. So to faith, we supply at diligent expense, don't miss it, moral excellence. Same word as in verse 3, where we see Jesus um, called us by his own glory and moral excellence. His own virtue, it could be translated. Meaning just as our Savior was morally virtuous and excellent, so should we strive to be if we call ourselves His followers. We pursue moral excellence. There, sh there should be an honorable 
because that's inherent in the word, an honorable moral virtue about us. Say, I'm, a, I'm saved. I thought I could live like hell. No. To moral excellence, we add knowledge. It's a key and important theme in the letter. There's this true knowledge of Christ built on the foundation of the Word of God and experienced in our intimacy with Him through time spent in prayer, seeking His will for our lives. Important key to understanding this true knowledge, seeking His will for our lives. To know Christ, we want to follow Him, doing what He wants us to do. To knowledge, we add self-control. Interesting word that appears only three times in the New Testament to include, to include here and in Paul's list, again, of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 3. That's important because self-control, listen, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not just self-mastery. The Greek world then, to, to the Greek world then, self-control was viewed as a good virtue to pursue. An entire philosophical system named Stoicism sought to, uh, 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 to master self-control. The problem, as sin readily reveals, is we cannot control ourselves. Can we? Not on our own. We can't even control the tongue, James 3 says. It's, a, it, it, it's a, such a small member. It's a deadly evil. or It's an evil filled with deadly poison. We need the indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit to give us divine power, remember, to exercise self-control. You see, the evidence of the filling of the Spirit of God, which is a moment-by-moment surrender to His control, evidence of being filled with the Spirit day-by-day, moment-by-moment, is the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. So it's a fruit of the Spirit, This brings us to an important understanding of what we are talking about. Here's a question. Is it God by His grace that enables us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ such that we live good, godly lives? Yes. Is it us working, applying all diligence to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and live godly lives? Yes. Because he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it like this. Sanctification that is growing in holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives with which we cooperate. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. It is a both and. We could not, no, we could not do it without the Spirit in our lives. But we don't just let go and let God. We work with all diligence, knowing that it is God who is ultimately working in and through us. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, do what? Work out your salvation. Work it out. Put it to work in fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his, uh, for his good pleasure. So is it God or is it me? Yes, of course it's God working in and through you, but you work. So again, who is working? Is it God or is it me? Yes. It is you proving the reality of your salvation, proving the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. And so if you are not su- supplying 
adding to these virtues, growing in, in them so that they become yours in abundance. You are proving that you do not. You do not have the Spirit of God in you. You are not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This self-control by the Spirit is important in this letter because these false teachers had given themselves over to fulfilling natural and sinful desires. How many of us do that? I'm saved. I'm okay. Got that box checked so I can give myself over to sinful desires. No, you can't. To self-control, add perseverance or endurance, central and necessary part of the Christian life. The idea of, pers- uh, of persevering in the faith appears over 30 times in the New Testament. We saw this idea of perseverance in First Peter in the midst of persecution. Hang in there, persevere, remain faithful in your commitment, stand firm to the end. Now he says in the midst of false teaching, even coming from within the church, persevere in the faith. Don't listen. Listen, you've got a plethora. That means a lot. You've got a lot of podcasts and people that you can look at on the internet who will give you all the false teaching that you want. Persevere in the faith. Don't give in. Don't be deterred. Do not be distracted. Remain faithful. To perseverance, supply godliness. It speaks of respect of and reverence for God. It is the same word as in verse 3. Don't miss it. You can pursue godliness. That is, you can pursue being like God in holiness because he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. To our godliness, we add brotherly kindness. I need to speed up or we'll never get done. We know this word. It is Philadelphia. It's a brotherly love. We talked about this before. Brotherly love is a family affection. It was prized in Greek and Roman cultures. It was appropriate to show love for biological family. In fact, we got, I think, the last verse of 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, we, we saw there we were supposed to greet one another with a kiss of love. Yes, they did that within the family, only in the biological family, brothers, sisters, mom, dad, sons, daughters. But in the Christian faith, we are family, thicker than blood, so we are brothers and sisters in Christ. This was a strange phenomenon in, in the Greek world. In fact, they used to call us all kinds of names. And it should be a strange phenomenon in our world. We should love each other so much that people look at us and go, what is wrong with those people? Well, we got Jesus. You are my brothers and sisters, and I love you. And whether you like it or not, you have to love me too. But just as he said in 1 Peter, since you have a sincere love of the brothers, fervently love one another from the heart. Here also he says, to your brotherly kindness or your brotherly affection, actually love, brotherly love, I want you to add love. Well, that sounds a little strange. To love, add love. Agape love. A sacrificial love that will do anything for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me say it this way. What would you not do for a biological family member? I mean, ones that you like. Mom, dad, brother, sister, son, daughter. So also here. And notice I said, you would do anything. You see, love is not just a feeling. True sacrificial love acts. It does something. You don't just feel warmly. 
about people as you walk, uh, as you greet them in church, you act, there's the word, you act lovingly toward them. It heads um, uh, the, the list in Paul's chain of virtues called the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And remember, love remains after faith is no longer necessary. You do understand there's coming a day when we will no longer need faith because we will see. But love will remain forever. Apex of the virtues. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. Peter says, so Peter says, make every effort, apply all diligence to add these virtues in increasing measure. The idea is possess these in abundance. I, I had one commentary that said, you shouldn't be striving for a C plus. Four, verse eight, if these qualities are yours in abundance, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge. There it is again of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses two somewhat synonymous, very interesting words. The first is useless. Don't want, you don't want to be useless. Used here, uh, uh, used in Matthew chapter 20, for example. There's the parable of the workers of the vineyard. And, and the landowner goes out and he puts people to work. And he comes back and he stands, sees men standing idle, same word. Idle in the marketplace, useless. They were not working. That's the idea. Not working. It's also found in James 2, where we read this provocative statement, if you don't like Scott saying it, faith without works is useless. Same word. So if you increase in these virtues, your faith will not be useless. Second word, nor will it be unfruitful. Used, for example, by Jesus when he said fruitless or unfruitful trees are worth nothing but to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Is what he did when he cursed the fruitless fig tree in Matthew 21. It was unfruitful. It was good for nothing. It was not doing what fig trees are supposed to do. Produce fruit. So also us. We, as we grow in these virtues, so too we will do what we are supposed to do. You, you say, you sound like that you want me to change the way I'm living Bingo. By the way, for us today, unfruitful is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 13, parable of the sower. Some seed fell on member on the hard soil, snatched away by Satan among the rocks, persecution, of, and, it, and it withered. Some um, fell among the thorns and were choked out, uh, which choked out the seed. The thorns are called, thorns are called, this is for us, the worries of this world, <laughs> I don't know, pandemic, and the deceitfulness of wealth. And as a result, Jesus says the seed is unfruitful. No spiritual life. Of course, there was also seed that fell on good soil. And what happened? It grew and produced what? Fruit. It did what we're supposed to do. And only the fourth seed is true spiritual life. Please notice, if you are increasing in these virtues which require action, you will not be useless, you will not be unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, which means, I would suggest, you can grow in true knowledge, but if that knowledge does not produce changed character, you are useless and unfruitful. That's what he's saying. 
James said the same thing in the second chapter of his letter. I've already referenced it. It's caused lots of confusion through the years. Some have suggested that Paul and James were at odds. They contradicted each other, this salvation by grace through faith. Luther, in fact, did not like James for a while. Um, he called it a right strawy epistle, meaning it wasn't really very valuable, not really worth much, but it perhaps be burned up. But James was simply saying what Peter says here. So if you want to tear this page out of your Bible, I'll give you a James chapter 2 to tear out as also, because this is how James says it. It's rather lengthy, but it's important. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith, this workless faith, pray to prayer, walk denial, living like the devil, can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You've heard it perhaps said this way, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. Go ahead. How do you know you got it? And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? That's great. You, you have some right beliefs here? That's wonderful. Even the devils believe that and tremble. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is, there it is, useless? In other words, it does not provide the intended result, that is, the salvation of your soul. James gives an example of Abraham and Rahab who proved their works by their faith, or their faith by their works. And then he sums up the passage with these words: For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Do you see? A faith that does not change you and start you on the path of useful and fruitful sanctification is not. Saving faith. Provocative? Controversial? Yep. It is not that works save you. It is that works prove that you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We all like to quote that. This is not of yourself. This is a gift of God. Not of works so that no one may boast. Yay, yay, yay. We stop right there. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Challenging verse. If you do not have these qualities and are not obviously growing in them, then you are blind, nearsighted, myopic. The idea is that you are blind to what God has done, being short-sighted. You are so focused on the here and now. You are distracted by the things of this life, seed among the thorns. So you have forgotten what the gospel accomplishes that is being purified from and saved from your sin. The implication is to not grow in these qualities is to persist in your sin, those formerly supposedly forgiven. And the implication is your former sins have not been forgiven since there is no work-producing faith. This is my concern. This is why I believe this to be a most important message we too have many in the church who name the name of Christ but do not live like followers of Jesus. 
And James' question is, can that kind of faith really save? And the answer is no. True faith receives the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling presence of a changed, life-producing, useful life, Spirit of God. Final point of Peter's and my sermon. Christians pursue spiritual maturity to enter heaven. To be clear, it is not spiritual maturity that produces salvation. It simply proves the reality of salvation. Verse 10, therefore, the the resulting conclusion of this matter, of this sermon, brothers, be all the more diligent. A form of the same word is in verse 5. Make every effort, make every expenditure to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Calling and choosing are synonyms. In fact, they're derivatives of the same word. It could be translated to prove his elective calling. Election speaks of the state of being chosen. I've been saying his calling is always effective. Those whom he calls to salvation respond in faith, also a gift from him. But now he is saying that those effectively called prove it. Those who have been effectively called prove it by their changed lives. Peter says, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, firm, that you are growing in these virtues. Again, to be uh, the more, uh, all the more diligent, verse 5, make every effort, speaks of zeal, it speaks of effort, it speaks of greatest expenditure of energy. This is the very proof of salvation th- that we are talking about. Why would we not expend every ounce of energy we have on this most eternal and worthy task? It needs to be of highest priority for which you make the highest of physical and moral expenditure. Yes, it is true. Other places in Scripture say that God will keep you firm and steadfast. Of course. But here Peter says, do your part. Sanctification is a work of the Spirit with which we cooperate participate, it is of highest importance. One author said it this way, this teaching, I get it, may sit uncomfortably with some people's theology. Interesting in the context, he says, with Calvinist theology, and he says, but I'm a Calvinist, but it sits uncomfortably with some people's theology, but it is the other side of the coin that has one side that God makes us firm, true, and on this side that we make our own salvation firm, true. And it is our side of the coin that the believers, Second uh, 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 Peter addressed, need to hear, for they were among those, uh, among some who think that their salvation is firm enough without their pursuing any of the virtues. I can live like the devil. And still belong to God. And Peter here says, no, you can't. For as long as you practice them, you will never stumble. You won't fall. Fall where? Fall into sin, maybe. Fall into your uh, former sins, perhaps. Fall away from the faith which you once professed. Yes. You see, if there is not fruit, there is no life-producing faith. 
So your part in the sanctification process is to make every effort to work diligently to prove the reality of your faith. Listen, I know this is hard. And if I were just a a, a pastor who just picked a passage of Scripture to, to teach or preach from, I probably wouldn't pick this one. I would venture to say most of you haven't heard it before because of our overemphasis on grace as if that can actually happen. Yes, it is all of grace, but grace requires human response. By doing so, verse 11, for this, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. This is glorious news. The opposite is also true. If they are not present in your life, the entrance into the eternal kingdom, that means heaven, will not be supplied to you. So my brothers and sisters, expend every effort to be found in him. And as a result, you will receive an entrance, entrance abundantly supplied by the gospel, not by your works, but by the gospel into God's eternal